or family units so that we can help connect them to the love of God, real relationships reaching. Um, and so this all involves the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? So the gospel is simply Jesus in my place. Jesus came to die in my place for my sins so that I might receive the forgiveness of those sins and thus be able to enter into this relationship with the God who created me. Well, so the gospel is about salvation. It's about experiencing healing in your soul because there is a lot of trauma that you go through throughout the course of your lifetime and hurt and pain. If you don't learn how to heal that, if you don't learn how to deal with that, um, that trauma, hurt, and pain begins to have physical effects upon your body. In fact, uh, I sent out to a couple of people a TED Talk by a woman who's a pediatrician, and she is talking about this at length. She's saying, look, children who go through traumas and they have no way to deal with those issues, it begins to have severe adverse physical effects later on in life, things like heart disease and um, Things like, uh, you know, just the stress of it all. And so it's kind of the fight or flight in that when you, um, when you are put in a situation where you have to fight or, or flee, your body changes, right? Your brain begins to release chemicals and your, you know, your pulse begins to heighten your heartbeat and you're, you're just ready to take on what is in front of you. Well, that fight or flight system that you have built in is great when you're facing like walking it down a pathway and you run across a bear or something like that. But if you are in a very traumatic environment as a child, that fight and flight is constantly being triggered. In fact, it is on red alert all the time. And so it begins to have some great, great adverse physical effects by the time you reach childhood. So that's why I'm so ramped up about helping people find healing in their soul. That's what sanctification. That's what growing in the faith is all about. And to help people discover, you know, as Jesus says, deliverance, that is tearing down of mental strongholds that Satan has erected in your mind. So there has to be healing emotionally and mentally if you're going to experience transformation in your life. And so that's, that's kind of what the gospel is all about. So I want to look at the, the seven churches because it, Jesus looks at these seven churches and he helps them to understand perspective. Like if I'm going to change something in my life, you're going to change something in your life, or even in a business, you have to look at perspective. You know, what is right, what is wrong, what is missing, and what is confusing? Those are the four questions you want to ask if you gain perspective as to where you are, because where you are is where you're heading. If you want to change where you're heading, then you need to understand where you are, right? So this is, what, this is the pattern that Jesus uses with all seven churches. He says, I want to give you perspective on your church. I want you to understand where you are from my perspective. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. This is what's confusing. And this is what is missing. And here's how you can turn that around. So the title of this entire series is Turnaround Churches uh, as we head into the future. Now, most of us as Americans remember watching on TV, uh, if you're old enough, January 28, 1986, 33 years ago, when the space shuttle, the Challenger, took off. 73 seconds into that flight, it explodes, and seven individuals lose their lives. Seven families are now you know, just robbed by death, and the entire nation was racked by grief at this uh, incident that took place. And all of the loss that happened that day 
was blamed on one single little O-ring that cost less than a dollar. The space shuttle was comprised over a million working parts, but because one part failed to work properly, it resulted in disaster. Sometimes when we come to church, um, we feel like that our role in church is only small and insignificant and inconsequential. Nothing could be further from the truth. Every single one of you sitting here is a very important aspect of what God wants to do here on planet Earth. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the answer to humanity's problems. That's why it was so important to Jesus. The church is a part of the movement of God, the hope of the world. We are the only entity that has been commissioned by Jesus to represent his agency here on earth, the kingdom of God. And so unhealthy churches have little if no lasting impact, but healthy churches can have great impact. It's not a question of the size of the church. It's a question of the health of the church. And that's what we're going after in this series. Are we a healthy church? And you know what churches are made up of? People, members, right? People, volunteers, all of us. And so what goes for the church goes for the individual life. So as Jesus is examining these churches, he's really examining our lives and saying and asking us those four questions. Hey, Greg, in this area... What's, I want to tell you what's, I'm going to tell you what's right, what's wrong, what's missing, what's confusing, because I want you to make an adjustment in your life so that we're all on the same page. Listen, Satan always seeks to either stop the church outwardly through persecution or inwardly uh, through carnality, whatever way he is most effective for him. And so John, who is the recipient of the letter known as Revelation, uh, remember that John was one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, John had been through a lot up to this point when he received this word, this message from God, downloaded from heaven to him as a means to which to bring encouragement to the body of Christ that was undergoing very severe persecution in that day and time. And so John, he's one who, he saw Jesus died, he died, he saw Jesus was buried, uh, resurrected, ascended back into heaven. It was John who was in the upper room with the 120 other followers who received the, the Holy Spirit upon him. It was John who witnessed Peter standing that day and sharing the gospel with uh, the Jewish people in Jerusalem and 3,000 people decided to become followers of Christ in that one day. John was a very powerful leader. And John, by this time that he receives this message from Christ, is very old in age. John has seen a lot. And so the Roman emperor Domitian was the primary catalyst of the persecution at this time against the church. But John was able to withstand that. He witnessed, he knew that all of the other 11 disciples, apostles, had already been martyred for their faith. And so John was forced to recant his faith. He refused to. They tried to kill him by putting him in boiling oil. Somehow he survived, and he was cast out onto this island called Patmos. Now, Patmos was not an island of paradise. It was 10 miles long, 6 miles wide, and basically a rock. It was like the Alcatraz of his day and time that was overseen by the Roman Empire. And so John is not backing up. He's not denying his faith. And so in the, 
while on this island, he receives this revelation from God. The word revelation simply means to unveil that which is previously hidden. So John's faith is being severely tested. The early church's faith is being severely tested by persecution against them. People are losing their lives, being ostracized, losing their jobs. And so after a while, your faith begins to kind of wane, doesn't it? It begins to kind of deteriorate a little bit under the weight of all that's happening. And so God is giving a message to John to share with the churches to bring um, encouragement to them. So the, the book of Revelation is not about, you know, us trying to figure out, you know, what is the mark of the beast and who's the beast out of the sea and who's the beast on the land and, and all those things that happened during the tribulation. And I've preached through this book about three or four times. So I understand all those concepts, but the real purpose of the book was to bring encouragement into the hearts and lives of God's people and to help adjust the church so that it continues to do God's will here on earth. And so um, here, here's John, and, and I, I want us to look at these, these churches to gain perspective. And so the very first church was found in the city of Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. So let's look in Revelation 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have, have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And so just a little bit on the city of Ephesus. This was a huge metropolitan city. There were major harbors in this city. People traveled from all over the world. And so there was like an international city in that day and time. Um, it was a major city in Asia Minor. And so these seven churches, if you plotted them on a map, they're like in a circular route through Asia Minor. It's like a, a mail route where the letters would be passed from one church to the other so that they could read as to what Jesus is saying to these churches. And uh, they had, um, so Ephesus had like a massive amphitheater that would seat 25,000 people in that day and time. And in Acts 19, the Apostle Paul came into Ephesus. We, remember, we went through the book of Acts. Came into Ephesus and he set up camp there for two years and went into the um, the Hall of Tyrannius and lectured there a few hours a day. That's about 3,100 hours uh, that he spent there. And the result was a, a huge riot, right? Remember that Paul was forced out of uh, Ephesus and, and, you know, the message just wasn't being um, received real well. But when Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem began to scatter because of persecution, Ephesus kind of became the epicenter of Christianity 
in Asia Minor and really in the entire region. Now, you'll notice it says, to the angel of the church at Ephesus. Who is angel referring to? Well, there are some who speculate that the word angel is referring to the pastor of the church. That the pastor is going to receive this message from Jesus, and uh, he's going to gain his perspective as to here's what's right, wrong, confusing, missing. Here's what you need to do to correct the course. Now, I want you to note very carefully, carefully that the pastor is called an angel. <laughs> Just saying. Or it could have been referring to an angelic being. There are those who believe that, that God has assigned an angel over each church because we work from the physical realm, the angels working from the spiritual realm in order to bring about and to accomplish uh, God's will here on earth. I'll let you decide. Uh, you cannot prove one way or the other, but uh, I'm going with the angel as a pastor right here. So, uh, so you notice it says, these are the words to him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Uh, this was probably a little tongue-in-cheek on Jesus' part, uh, kind of against the Roman emperor of Domitian. Uh, Domitian declared himself, from the time he started ruling in, in Rome, he declared himself to be a god over, over, the, over the earth. And, uh, you know, the Christians oftentimes referred to him as the beast, and he named, you know, he named uh, a few months of the year after himself. Now, it was customary that after an emperor died, um, then they would declare him to be a god because he's gone to the spirit realm. But the Domitian, in a very unprecedented move, declared himself to be a god before he even started ruling. They didn't even know what he was going to be like, how, how well he was going to do or anything. And so... Um, one of the things that he did to demonstrate his godhood was that he minted coins with his face on it. And, uh, I mean, you think about, in, you know, here in the United States, we have coins with the face of presidents on those coins, but those presidents are dead, right? So he's not dead. He's very well alive, just starting ruling and reigning, and so it's kind of pretentious on his part in declaring himself. And one of the coins that was minted is that he is sitting on a globe holding seven stars. And uh, so the people in Ephesus were walking around with these coins in their pocket that had this, their Roman emperor's you know, face on it, and, and he was sitting on the world holding these seven stars. It's like, and he's declaring that he must be honored and worshiped as a god. Now... Um, Domitian was a counterfeit God, but he declared himself to be God. So when Jesus starts this letter out, it's almost like Jesus is going to say, you know what? Um, and that guy may make coins, and he may put his face on those coins and hold whatever he wants and thinks he's in control of this world, of this empire, called the Roman Empire, and he's going to control the fate of the world. I just want you to know that I am the Savior of the world. I am the high priest of God. I am God himself sitting at the right hand of the Father, the place of authority, and 
Jesus is saying, no, I'm the one who's holding the seven stars. I'm the one who is God over creation. And my plan and my will and my purpose will be unfolded upon planet earth as I will it to be done. I am the king of kings. I am the Lord of lords. There is none before me and there will be none after me. And so it's almost like tongue-in-cheek. And so he's got these, notice he's walking among the seven golden lampstands because churches were to be what? Light in the midst of great darkness. Jesus himself, while on earth, said, you know, hey, we, we don't take our lampstand and we don't cover it up. We let it shine. We are to be light in darkness. We are to be salt in the middle of decay. And so Christianity has come as light. And Jesus says he is the light of the world. And so the church is like a lampstand. We are to talk about Jesus, love Jesus, serve Jesus, so that we can bring light in the midst of darkness so that Jesus becomes attractive to those who are living in darkness and searching for meaning and purpose in life. And while they're searching for meaning and purpose in life, they're going through, you know, very difficult things. People are, you know, I mean, we live in a world now that is extremely volatile, extremely angry. Everybody is up in arms about everything. And everything now, uh, you know, even the words that we use, everything has to be politically correct. And how far can you take that? And so... It just begins to implode upon itself. And Jesus says, if, if the church does what the church needs to do, I will be, you will be a lampstand in the midst of darkness. But not, look what he said. If you don't do what I've asked you to do, he said to them, I will remove your lampstand and it will shine no more. If you look throughout church history, the church did not heed the words of Jesus, and the Ephesus church ceased to exist. There are about 4,000 churches a year in America that cease to exist. And we're going to talk about one of the reasons why here today. So what is it that Jesus says you're doing right? I mean, at every church, he says, these are the things that are good. This is what you're doing that is right. Well, first of all, he says, you are serving Faithfully, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. Perhaps no church in history had such a rich heritage as this congregation. I mean, Paul ministered there for three years. Then his protege, Timothy, was the pastor. And then John himself was there during the latter years of his life. And Apollos after that. I mean, they had a rich history of pastors that were leading their church and these are people, he says, they're working hard, right? It takes, it takes a lot of hard work to build a church. Just like it takes a hot, lot of hard work to build a marriage. Have you discovered that? You, you thought marriage was going to be easy, didn't you? Right? And so you thought, well, we're just so madly in love, and the feelings are gone, you know, and we're so euphoric, and oh, I mean, just talking to her on the phone, my heart begins to palpitate, and oh, that first kiss, and the holding hand, and it's just going to be a great forever, and then you get married, and those, those uh, euphoric feelings begin to subside, and, and there comes that moment in time, you roll over in bed, and you think to yourself, why in the world did I marry this person? I don't even know who they are. I, I, I see so many flaws in them now. I see things I never thought I saw before. I didn't know this was a part of the package deal. 
And so you have to work at marriage, right? You have to work at getting along and getting together and, you know, the two shall become one. Well, that's just not automatic. The two have to work at becoming one. And so the same is true in church. And so he says, man, I commend you guys. You are working hard. That word hard means to beat yourself on the chest. It's a, it's a means that they are working to the point of exhaustion because they are so wanting to be the light of Christ in the world around them because Ephesus was not an easy place to be a Christian. There was a lot of paganism there, and there's just a lot of stuff that was going on in the city of Ephesus. And there was, you know, there were 50 gods and goddesses, and there was the, the temple to Diana, who was the goddess of fertility. And so at night, the prostitutes come out of the temple onto the streets because that was a part of the religious system. And these are the people they're called to reach out to. And, and so they're working hard at it, and their persevering means that they were patient in trying circumstances. In essence, uh, they were servants, and they were, man, they were volunteering hours of their time. Because they knew the importance of what God had called them to do. And so in your serving, in their serving, they did, it, they did a great job. They invested their time. They invested their talents. They invested their resources. Just like many of you do here, many in this church, every week in and week out, you're investing time and, and effort and resources. And, and we couldn't do what we do without you doing that. And so, man, they just responded to the call of God. And God sent them out. And so if you're here, though, and you're in our church for an ex any length of time and you're not serving in ministry, listen, ministry is about actively participating, not passively spectating. See, a disciple, the, 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 the description of a disciple is someone who has moved from being the recipient of the church's mission to being, a, a, to being responsible for the church's mission. So we need to serve. We are called to serve. We ought to be serving. And, and they were doing that. And, and so Jesus was commending them for that. And here's why. Because if you don't serve, here's what happens over time is that you, you become a consumer. And after a while, then you begin finding fault with everything. Well, I don't like this. And I don't like the way they do that. And I don't like the way they do this. And... Uh, yeah, as, as things go, you're looking for that perfect church, and I can tell you we're not a perfect church because we are made up of imperfect people, right? Jesus commends them. Yeah, you guys are going at it. Number two, they were, they were enduring hardship. He says you're enduring hardship. Again, you know, there's these, these gods and goddesses, and, and um, Domitian is, you know, he's requiring you to worship him as a god, or you could lose your life, except... If you were a Jew, he protected the Jews because that was a part of the Roman deal. But remember, they're no longer Jews. They've moved out of Judaism into Christianity. Therefore, they are open to, susceptible to losing their life if they fail to bow knee to Domitian and acknowledge him and worship him as a god. And so they're enduring the hardship of this. And you get into uh, you know, other books of the Bible, like the book of Hebrews in chapter uh, 12 and the, the great faith chapter, but yet there were those who were losing their lives by the thousands because they refused to bow down and acknowledge Domitian as God. And number three, he says, man, I'm, I'm commending you because this is what's right. You are, you are discerning, right? You're, you're discerning. You, 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 you have discerned as to who is a false teacher. False teaching was prevalent in this day and time. There are a lot of people who came along and says, well, 
you know, now that Jesus has died, and now that many of the disciples, the original apostles of Jesus have died, guess what happens on the, on the backside of that? You can come in and start teaching anything you want, and all the eyewitnesses are gone, so they can't refute what you're trying to teach. This is how cults start. And so he says, man, you guys are being discerning, and you, you even hate um, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, Nicholas was a deacon back in the book of Acts in chapter 6 who kind of went wayward and started some of these false teachings. And uh, so Nicolaitans are not people who put a nickel in the offering plate. They're actually a group of people, but there's a doctrine they live by. And basically the doctrine said this, hey, if you come to know Jesus, great, because now you're locked into Christ and heaven's going to be your home. And therefore, it matters not how you live the rest of your life. Do whatever you want. And so it took freedom of grace and pushed grace to go wild. Right, So you can do whatever you want, live however you want. It did not matter because you were under the umbrella of God's grace. Therefore, man, just live it up. And so it cheapened the work of the cross and our, you know, call, living out the calling of God upon our lives so that we were just living. They were just living now for selfish means, a selfish end. And it's like, yeah, this is just what we're going to do. And so it was a false teaching because it was contrary to all the other teachings of Scripture, even Jesus himself. And he commends them for that. Man, you're not doing this. But then he says, here's what's wrong. You have left your first love. What does that mean? You've left, I mean, here's a church that's a beehive activity, man. They are serving. They are going after it. They're, they're weeding out the false teachers. They're discerning. They're enduring all this hardship. And he says, but you have forsaken your first love. And so God reveals in this passage that he is very, as, as much concerned about the condition of your heart as he is the amount of activity and ministry that you may be involved in. Or let me put it this way. Spiritual activity is no substitute for spiritual intimacy. Do you know that you can spend the next 20, 30, 40 years serving like crazy the Lord Jesus Christ and never know him intimately. The very reason, the very purpose for which you were created. Listen, here's why Jesus starts here. Because everything, everything, everything about the Christian life flows out of this relationship between you and Christ. I know as a pastor, I can get so busy, I can do so many things. Listen, I've been preaching long enough, I could do sermons, I, you know, I could say, you know, God, I, I'm really busy, Lord, don't have any time to spend with you th this week, I'm going to put you on the, you know, kind of on the back burner, I, I got this, I can handle this, I can write the message, and I can write the message, I get up here and I can preach it, I can do all those things, in fact, I could do that for weeks on end, months, even years, and miss the very Savior of whom I'm representing and have no relationship, intimate relationship. I don't even know who he is. I don't even know how he thinks. I don't even know what he wants because I'm just busy doing, 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 doing. And so that happens so much. You know, if you have a conversation with people, what's the first thing people say to you? Man, I'm just so busy. I'm just so busy. My schedule is just so crowded. I can't, I can't add, right? We, and guess who gets left behind? Jesus. 
oh, we may throw a prayer up here and there, and we may open up the Word of God and read a couple of verses, you know, once in a while. And, and usually our prayers are, you know, centered around our needs, our wants, our desires, but never just spending time with Him, just never seeking the heart of God. Now, and so don't misunderstand Jesus. Jesus was not asking this church to pump themselves up emotionally and say, you know what, what you guys need to do is just really pump yourself up and get those euphoric feelings going again and just, just live off those euphoric feelings. No, love in the Bible, love is not so much about feelings, right? The great love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 says this is what love looks like, this is what love does, says nothing about feelings. It says everything about what? Here's what you need to be doing. It's all about obedience. Here's what love does. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Here's what love does. Here's how love acts. It's something that you do, not just something that you feel. And so what happens is if you begin to lose Christ at the center of this love relationship, is that it begins to change how you view ministry. You may be doing ministry, but it it changes the way you view it. It begins to change the way you view people. How you see them, how you perceive them. We're going to talk about a couple of those here in just a moment. And so here's what happens to churches when they lose their first love. They used to be outward oriented, now they become inward oriented, inward focused. And it becomes all about us. My wants, my desires, my needs, and I lose the focus of the heart of God, which is those who are not in his kingdom yet. And then we just start making excuses. Well, I don't have the time. I don't have the talent. I don't have the personality. I don't have this. I don't have, I don't have, I don't have. Might I remind you that God has given you the Holy Spirit to empower you beyond and above anything you think you don't have? And so they didn't have the wrong books on the shelves. They didn't have the wrong teachers in the pulpit. He wasn't criticizing them because they were, weren't generous givers or faithful servants or patient endurers, but they just lost this, this love relationship to the degree that God wanted it. And so we are in the business being actively and spiritually transformed by God, not to be merely informed by God. You see, coming to church, opening up God's word, is never about information, although we receive information. It's always about transformation. It's always about what God wants to do in your heart, in your life, to draw you closer to himself, that you might experience the benefits of the relationship that you have with him. But when Jesus gets set on the back burner, you know, it's like any relationship. Like if if in my marriage, if I say to my wife, "Uh, honey, you know, it's going to be a busy week, uh, actually, it's going to be a busy month. Um, I'll get back with you when the month's up. Not going to go well. Just saying. Not that I've ever tried it. Or maybe I have. So let me just show you some what was confusing and how this impacts and affects your life and the life of a church. What I call truth versus love. The Bible says that Jesus came full of grace and truth. In other words, God spoke some, Jesus spoke some hard truth to people, right? But he always did it in the context of love. 
He wasn't trying to pay people back. He was trying to bring them back into relationship with the Father who created them. All right, so here's a woman who's caught in adultery. She's thrown at his feet, and those who caught her in adultery says, well, the law says stoner. Now, Jesus could have got up and said, yep, that's what the law says. Go at it, guys. Instead, he saw, yeah, that's true. She's been caught in adultery, but let's wrap this in love. Let's wrap this in grace. Um, by the way, the first one of you guys that has never committed to sin, you, you cast the first stone. And of course, you know they all had to drop their stones and walk away. And then he says to her, where are your accusers? And she says, they have all gone. And he says, neither do I accuse you. Rise up and go and sin no more. I'm giving you a new life, a new beginning, a new start. Here's what happens when your heart grows cold in intimacy with Christ. We look at people and we see their sin and then we start railing against the sin. We start hitting the streets with picket signs, railing against someone who is homosexual. Or we you know, jump on the bandwagon of condemning somebody's sin as though that were the calling of God upon our lives. God calls sin, sin. He's not bashful about that. But how we approach that is, makes all the difference in the world. If I'm, going to, if I'm going to help lead a person to Christ because I believe that Jesus has the best life for them, then I have to take truth, yes, but I have to couch it. I have to put it in the terms of grace and love. And so my approach is totally different, right? It's not just a, oh, let's just go after this group of people. Let's go after this group of people. And so, yeah, that's, that's what happens, though. If, if, if it's all truth, man, I've got bullets in my gun called the Word of God, and I'm ready to bah, 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 anyone I see doing those particular sins. But it's amazing how we forget about our own, right? Just like the guys who brought the adulterous woman. They forgot all about their stuff. They just wanted to rail against hers. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not how we approach this. Jesus says that we need to say the right thing in the right time, in the right way, with the right motives. Doctrine versus the Holy Spirit. Like the church at Ephesus, you know, we can be so caught up in doctrinal things. In other words, we, we, we've got the foundational doctrines un, under our belt, and, you know, I, I've been a Christian long enough, been walking with God long enough, and I've got my verses tucked in my belt, my, you know, my arsenal, and so when I feel anxious, I know what, you know, verses to go to, if I feel stressed, or whatever it is that I might be going through, and, and sometimes we, have, we, we think that we are so well equipped that we no longer need to listen to the Spirit of God. He's just a side note because I've systematized and completed everything that I think I need to do. To all seven of these churches, Jesus said, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say. There is at no time in your life that you need not hear from God's Holy Spirit. And one of the ways that you do that most effectively is in your time, your relationship with Jesus Christ. 
in the Word of God. The Spirit of God authored the Word of God, and He can give you guidance. He can give you encouragement. He can lead you, shape you, inform you, direct you. And so what, what the Holy Spirit wants to do is to give you heavenly downloads that will enable you to hear what He has to say about this particular time, this moment, this thing. It's kind of like... Um, how many of you have kids, you know, and when they're home, like all of them, are, and you say, don't use your outside voice inside the house, right? Use your inside voice. Well, the outside voice of God is like the book of Revelation, man. You've, you've, you've got all this stuff that's going on in the heavenlies and the rise of the Antichrist. That's the outside voice. What you need is the inside voice of God. That's the voice of the Holy Spirit. Because the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That word, word, is the word rima, which means a specific message of God from his Holy Spirit to you regarding your life in that moment, in that time. You need to hear from the Spirit of God. But if you're constantly busy and on the run and always filling your mind with noise and all these things around you, and you never quiet yourself before the Spirit and just kind of... Soak in his presence and allow him to speak. You're not going to hear much. But God wants, that's, that's a part of the relationship. Annoyance versus mission. If we're not careful, our mission can become annoying to us instead of a mission for us. What do I mean by that? Is that we can become annoyed by the very people we've been called to reach. I don't, want to, I don't want anything to do with those people. They're annoying. If you, you, see, if you know how they act, you've seen what they've done, you know what. See, here's what I know is when, you, when there's intimacy with you and Jesus, his heart and your heart come in alignment. And the Bible says if you'll delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you desires your heart. That's heart alignment. And when you align your heart with Jesus, the only people that annoyed Jesus were the religious hypocrites called the Pharisees. You know what Jesus went after? He went out after all the outcasts, the people that the Pharisees, the religious people, didn't want anything to do with. In fact, they criticized Jesus for that, and he gave them parables about that criticism. And in those parables, the lost son, the lost sheep, and the lost coin... He was saying to them, in essence, you have never locked eyes on anyone who isn't important to God and who needs a relationship with me. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I bet you from God's perspective, you and I are pretty annoying to him from time to time. Just a thought. I annoy my wife, so why wouldn't I annoy God? Contempt versus compassion. You know, when you look at people and say, well, they're so stupid, they're just messed up, they're rebellious, they, just, they deserve what they get. And so the Bible says that people are blind, they are spiritually dead. They, and that, is, that means we have to come at them with compassion, right? Do you know before you came to Jesus, you were spiritually blind, you were spiritually dead? Who gave your sight back to you? Who who breathed resurrection life into you? Jesus did. And he's called us to do the same for others. You know, and, and most all of our lives, some, God used somebody to help you come to faith in Christ. 
It's the Holy Spirit who drew you to that relationship, but somebody probably helped you in that process of that relationship. Why? Because they had compassion for you. They had empathy for you. And if, we, if our heart, our love grows cold in this relationship with Christ, we look at people with contempt rather than we do with compassion. You know, you're just stupid, you're foolish, you deserve what you get. I hope you get what you deserve. On and on we go. And then we get to the point where, you know, we're just, we're just sick of it. And so here's the, sixth, the fifth one is we've, we just come to the conclusion, I've done enough. I've done enough. I'm not doing it anymore. I spent X number of years of my life helping, trying to help people, and it's been hard. It's been frustrating, and you get, you know, you help people take three steps forward, and then they abandon you, or you help them take three steps forward, and they take 10 back, and you get them two forward, and they take 12 back, and it's just like a yo-yo back and forth. I'm done. I'm, I'm finished. It's over with. Your heart can get there. Real quick. Do you know what the average length of tenure is for pastors right now? In the ministry, where they say, I'm done, it's over, I'm walking away. Ten years. Ten years. And one of the areas that you go back to is the love relationship with Jesus. Because if that grows cold, you're fair game when the enemy comes against you and you've got nothing to fight with. One of my prayers for this church has been, God, I want to see a movement of you. But I don't want it to be a movement of, oh, we have a, you know, a, a brilliant light show and you know, all these other things as attractional things. I want to see the raw power of God come upon this place and be displayed. Amen. Now, since I've been praying that prayer, our church has been in decline. And here's what God said to me. Be careful what you pray. You remember Gideon? I told him to fight the Midianites. He had a vast army. I had to whittle it down to 300. Because if you're asking me to display my power in a way that only I get credit, it has to be humanly impossible. And that's exactly what it was for Gideon, and that's what it can be for us. I've talked to a lot of pastors who, when their churches were small, that are now mega churches, when their churches were small, there was just such a, a raw dependence upon God. There was just like, man, they were, they were willing to do anything and step out on any area of faith because, well, what do we have to lose, man? There's only like 12 of us here, so let's just go for it. And, and so that's just, that was the mindset, and they were just seeking God, seeking the heart of Christ, seeking the passion of Jesus. But then as the church grew and, and needs grew and budgets grew, and then all of a sudden they were no longer quite as dependent upon God because they knew they could pull that off on their own, and they could budget that, and they could, they could staff that, and they could do all the things without God's power resources being applied. In other words, in human effort. Dangerous place to be. And so God says, remember, and repent, and redo. What does it mean to repent? Repent is simply a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. 
and remember. Remember what it was like. So when God has forced me back to this love relationship with Jesus, as I've shared with you before, just God gave me, down, just gave me a vision of Jesus standing in the water off the seashore and just asked says, you want to come with me? You want to walk with me? You want to go with me? You're going to have to step out into the water. You're going to have to go deep. And so what he was asking me to do is not go deep in studying more doctrine, not going deep in reading more books, not going deep. No, he's asking me to go deep with him, to walk with him, to rely upon him, because what I'm asking him to do is going to require a magnitude of faith and if I, if I can't get there, it can't happen. If I'm not willing to trust God for it, it's not going to happen. One of the reasons why I'm so passionate about helping kids in particular who are struggling, who have, you know, re, have, 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 have um, experienced trauma in their lives. The, I mean, the, the numbers are staggering. I'm going to bore you with all the stats, but the number of kids, for example, who are, who are molested, who are raped, I mean, the average age now is six, and the percentages are huge, and, and there's nothing there for them, right? What do we do? We just make them live with that and, and, and deal with that best they can until they become adults so they can try to find some kind of counseling, some kind of therapy, some kind of help. By then, it is so set within them that the sin is so deeply embedded in them, it's almost impossible for them to get free. I think it's a tragedy that the church is looking upon this and we're doing nothing about it. And I think we can do something about it. But it comes out of intimacy. And so in, here's the on, last couple fill in the blanks. Intimacy, once again, allow God to become the true center of your life. That's what intimacy is. We have a world to reach. The church is the representative of the kingdom of God. And we are reaching into the hearts and lives of people now in our communities, where we work, our neighborhoods, whose souls have been ravaged. They have no biblical knowledge, no biblical understanding. I mean, when I was growing up, you know, even though I was never raised in a Christian home, I still had some, you know, some knowledge of, of Jesus and the Bible and those things. And, and, but, I mean, now it's just nothing. And, and just the way our society is moving in the direction, people are hurting, they are angry, they are, they are just so blind and so consumed with self. This, these are the people we are called to reach, but if my heart is not in tune with Jesus, I will just simply say to them, you know what, tough luck. Find it the best you can. I hope somebody comes across your pathway rather than saying to Jesus, how about sending us? Why don't you let us go and help to rescue those who are perishing? The only way you can align your will with the will of the Father is to spend time in his presence. And that's what Jesus' message was to this church. You've left your first love. You've set me aside. You're just doing business as usual. But I have so much more. And the so much more is you have opportunity to taste of my divine presence, just as you will in paradise in heaven from the tree of life, in the here and now so that you might be a lampstand that will shine brightly in the midst of darkness, salt in the midst of decay, so that I can reach 
the hearts and the lives of those who are without me. Let's pray together. Father, we know, I know, I know, no, it breaks your heart. You so long for this, this loving relationship with us, but we just don't deem it as, as important as you do. Father, forgive us for the times that we become so self-consumed with our own lives. And Lord, you know how, how busy we are. You, you understand about busyness. You understand about the consumption of our lives. You understand all these things. Father, we, I, I just know that you can do more in us and through us in five minutes through your Holy Spirit than we could do in five years if we will, if we will seek that from you. God, may you draw our hearts back to yourself where Jesus is the center of our lives once again. Not just an add-on, not just a piece of the pie, but the actual center of our lives and our existence. I pray, Father, that we will have a yearning desire just to spend time with him. Spend, Spend time with the Holy Spirit who resides within us indwells us that we might receive those heavenly downloads that we so desperately need. Downloads of encouragement. Downloads of peace. Downloads of contentment. Just so many things. And I pray that for your church today. Father, we'll respond today's, to today's message by hungering and thirsting for you once again. Because Jesus, you said that if we will hunger and thirst, that we will be satisfied. And our satisfaction is found in you, the bread of life, the water of life. May we find it there. It's my prayer for this church. As we launch out of the gate in this series, oh God, May we look for ways that we can keep Jesus at the center and have intimacy, time, and fellowship with him. And let that relationship flow into every relationship that we have with anyone else. For it's in Christ's name we pray. The one who provided it. Amen. Let's stand together as we're going to close our time this morning. You know, Jesus came into the world, as we say the essence of the gospel, Christ in my place. Jesus took my sin debt, your sin debt, the world's sin debt, the Bible says, and he allowed the Father to pour that out upon him while dying on a cross. He drank the cup of God's wrath for the sins of humanity for all of history here on earth. And when Jesus, 
had completed what he was sent to do. He says, it's finished. To tell us die, it's paid in full. And God says that now you and I have opportunity to accept the gift that Christ is offering us, to have our sin debt credited to his account and his righteousness credited to our account so when God looks upon us, he doesn't see all the wrongs, he doesn't see all the flaws, he doesn't see all the failures, he just sees Jesus. It's not that God does, you know, ignores those things, but we never have to fear the anger, the wrath of God upon our lives because Christ drank that cup on our behalf. And now through him, man, you start a whole new journey. Your feet get set on a path that lead to an entirely different destination. I remember like it was yesterday, the day I made that decision. I made that decision only because the Spirit of God was drawing me. Man, I was, I was clenching the back of the pew like, no, I'm not going, I'm not going. And finally, God spoke to me and said, why are, you, why, why, why are you resisting what I have for you? You're right. Why am I resisting? Greatest, the greatest moment in my life was when I gave my heart over Christ and he began transforming me. I was an absolute wreck. Now I'm just a little wreck. Then I was an absolute wreck. But God's still working on me just as he's still working on you. But I have a divine calling as you do and I have a passion to see the gospel of Christ, the full gospel, to save, to heal, to deliver, to brought bear upon humanity whatever time I have on this earth, whatever breath I have left until my dying breath to see people encounter Jesus and encounter the greatest miracle of their life ever to be brought back from the dead and made new again and the life of God living in them. The question is, who's with me? Right? If you're here, you've never trusted Jesus to save your Lord of your life, I encourage you, man, this is the day. Today's the day of salvation. And I'd love to pray with you now or after the service, either one. It doesn't matter to me, but we as a church, Jesus is giving us perspective, and his perspective is simply this. Where am I in the pie of your life? Am I in the center, or am I just a slice? If I'm just a slice, you need to get me back into the center because that's where I want to be, and that's where I operate the best from. Amen? You believe that? All right, let's sing.